Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk History. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The story of emancipation is a long and complex thread running through American history from 1619 to the present. Millions of people were involved in one way or another, but few individuals played more notable roles than John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. Their intertwined and overlapping stories are the subject of a new book by H.W. Brands, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. We'll talk with Professor Brands tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters COVID Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Once again, not on the campus of East Carolina University, but still also not speaking for East Carolina University, nor speaking for anyone else. My guest likewise speaks only for himself tonight, as we always do here. Well, the local news here in Greenville was that ECU's Pirates football team won a game this past week. It is hard to believe that football is back underway in any form, much less that ECU has actually won a game. They beat some team from Florida 44-24. to 24. It was a decisive uh, stomping and, and something that we have not seen around here in a very long time. People are, are you know, breathing heavily and just, just overcome with the excitement of, of winning a game in, in style. The first time ECU has beaten a team not called University of Connecticut within the conference in about four years. So that was that was just delightful. We play Navy this week, so that is going to come to a screeching halt. No one can stop their triple option. 
but it was fun while it lasted. Meanwhile, on campus, the other more relevant to Civil War talk radio news is our board of trustees decided that they want to put this issue of what things are named of behind them once and for all, as the provost or as the acting chancellor told me. Uh, one of the members said, we just want to you know, study this history thing once and never have to worry about it again. And while the acting interim chancellor is not a historian, he's a geographer, he knows enough history to laugh when he told me that and understand that history changes with every new event, with every generation. Perspectives change. It's not something written in cement and left permanently. Nonetheless, they are forming a committee to examine the names of all the buildings on campus and to uh, report to the board so the board can decide if they want to uh, remove any of the names that might date to the era of white supremacy. They attempted something similar to this uh, about five years ago. There was an attempt to, uh, uh, well, there was a, a challenge to the name of one of the residence halls, which was named for a North Carolina governor, who in fact was a, a virulent white supremacist. And at that time, we got ahead of the national curve. We changed that name before a lot of other universities were doing that. But we didn't change a lot of names, and a lot of people in 1907 in North Carolina were indeed overt white supremacists. Uh, so we're going to look at other buildings this time. One advantage over the previous process was the first time this was done, the administration formed a committee consisting entirely of administrators, miscellaneous faculty, student leaders, staff people. Uh, number of people from the history department was zero, because after all, it's a historical topic and you've got professional historians on campus, so how many should you consult? None of them. Uh, to be fair, there were a couple people from university archives, uh, but that was not a good process. This time around, they have formed a committee that once again is a representative committee, people from all different uh, constituencies on campus, like students and staff and administration and faculty. But this time they asked a history professor to chair the committee, and uh, that was me. And I made it clear to them that this is not a research committee. These people don't have any research qualifications. I'm not going to ask them to do any research on this. This is a policy committee. I will subcontract the research to the university historian, who's a trained historian, a uh, member of our department, and to the university archivists who know the institutional history. And we'll, they will present the findings to the committee and then the committee can make policy decisions, but we'll be acting on evidence-based research this time, not on what some people from various other departments think, oh, that's probably how it was, so let's make a decision. So it's an improvement. It's a step forward, and uh, we'll see what the quality of decision-making is coming out from that. The quality of decision-making here at Civil War Talk Radio will remain high based on the people who will be on the show in the next few weeks. Next week, David Dixon will be making a return appearance. He has a new book, uh, Radical Warrior, August Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. On the 28th of this month, October of 2020, uh, Professor Thavolia Glimp and her book, The Women's Fight, 
the Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation will be our feature on November 4th. Not a book, but non-printed Civil War scholarship will be the topic. We'll have Stephen Barry returning to the show. He has many digital projects, including one called Private Voices uh, from the Civil War. That should be very interesting. And then on November 11th, Robert May uh, helps us ring in the holiday season with a book called Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. It is probably not one to gather around the tree and with a eggnog and expect uh, happy times, but it promises to be very interesting. Just to finish out the fall season, no new show on November 18th. It'll be final Sam's weekend. Then comes Thanksgiving, but we'll have two shows in December. Tim Smith, who was supposed to be on in May, is coming back. He had a family matter that uh, prevented him being here. His new book is The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. And we'll wrap up a seasonal presentation on December 9th with Kenneth No. His new book is The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. Uh, it's a big book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, and if we're snowed in, you could burn the pages one at a time and stay warm for weeks if necessary. But uh, we'll look forward to that. You can find out always what's happening at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things going. Uh you can donate to the show. The PayPal account button is there. You don't need a PayPal account. Just push the button. Money is sucked out of your wallet and put into mine. It is not a charity. It's not a 501c3. I'm not accountable for what I do with it. Uh, and you can't deduct it on your taxes. So that's as transparent as I can be. But I will say donations are much appreciated. Uh, and uh, hope that you can see your way occasionally to doing that. Tonight, our guest is two-time Pulitzer finalist and New York Times best-selling author, Professor H.W. Brands, whose new book is called The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. Professor Brands, are you there? I am. Nice to talk to you, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Uh, in your publicist's email, she calls you Bill. Is that okay to call you that? Uh, sure, so you go introduce by? me as H.W., that way readers will know what to look for in the bookstore. But yeah, between you and me, it's Bill. Wonderful. I, I do the same. I'm, I'm Gerald only only was to my mother, no one else in the world, but that's on the <laughs> cover cover of the book, so Jerry confuses me. Right. But yes, H.W. Yeah. Brands is the name you want to look for, listeners, when you're going to the bookstore. Um, but Bill, thank you for, for joining me tonight. Uh you have written in many eras. You have written about you know, Lyndon Johnson. You've written about uh, uh, characters throughout American history. What brought you to the Civil War era? Honestly, I have been trying to avoid Abraham Lincoln for a while because everybody else in the world is writing about Abraham Lincoln. But sooner or later, you got to deal with Lincoln. But I didn't want to write a biography of Lincoln because, again, there are, I don't know, a thousand biographies of Lincoln. So I, I needed to look at Lincoln from a slightly different perspective. And in early years, I wrote a series of biographies. And while I was doing that, I was intrigued 
by the biography as a genre for revealing history. So you tell the story of history through people who lived it. And I, I liked doing it, and I'm happy I did it. But by the time I finished, so there were a series of six biographies that covered American history from the 18th century to the 20th, late 20th century, from Benjamin Franklin to Ronald Reagan. But while I was doing it, by the time I finished doing it, I had become sensitive to a tendency that is apparent. I think it's inherent in writing biographies, and that is, try though you might, you cannot help but give the impression to your readers that the world revolves around your subject, because <clears throat> this is your subject's story. Now, any commonsensical individual, any historian certainly knows that the world doesn't revolve around anybody, even <clears throat> a president of the United States, or you know, one could imagine a pharaoh of Egypt or something like that. There's lots of other stuff going on. And so I wanted to get away from that. But I still like the idea of telling stories of history through the eyes and words of individuals. So I thought, well, what if I pair people? And I tried this with an earlier book on Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur. And a bitter fight they got into in the middle of the Korean War, which ended with Truman firing MacArthur. So this brought me back to Abraham Lincoln. And also the question of slavery. But it also grows out of my teaching. So I have been teaching history since the late 1970s. And the longer I teach, the more I'm convinced that the basic questions of history are questions that turn on moral values. So differences of opinion. You know, who was the greatest president in history? Or do you think the New Deal was a good deal or a bad deal? They have less to do with the facts of the matter than with the values that people bring to the question. And so regarding the New Deal, you'll think it's a good deal if you think, if you're a liberal and you think the government does good in people's lives. If you're a conservative, you probably think it's a bad deal. And that, that really has less to do with the facts of the 1930s than with the values people bring. Anyway, so I'm thinking of these sort of fundamental moral questions. And a fundamental moral question, it appears to me, in, certainly in a democracy, is what does a good person do when his government is engaged in a great evil? What do you do about this? And it's a question that comes up in one form or another all the time. I grew up, I was a teenager and I went off to college during the Vietnam War. And I was opposed to the war. I thought the war was immoral and wrongheaded. And I marched in some protests, but I had friends who took it beyond that, engage in you know, acts of vandalism. It would have been called, certainly, and it was called at the time. So what do you do? And the big question that confronted Americans pretty much all Americans in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, was what do you do about slavery? Because there were very many people, not everybody, but there were very many people who acknowledged that slavery was wrong in some basic way. But there it was. It was, if with each generation of independent America, they had inherited the institution, so what do you do about it? And I wanted to look at two individuals who agreed that slavery was fundamentally wrong, but disagreed about the, pro, the proper approach for dealing with it. And John Brown was one. John Brown believed that slavery was fundamentally evil, and he was willing to take up arms and commit violence to bring that evil to an end if he could. Abraham Lincoln yielded nothing to John Brown in his belief that slavery was wrong, but he also thought that violence was wrong. And furthermore, Abraham Lincoln revered the Constitution. And as much as he regretted it, 
he acknowledged that Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina, under the Constitution, could keep slavery as long as they wanted. Lincoln believed that preserving the Union, observing the Constitution, was more important for the long-term benefit of Americans than ending slavery, if ending slavery required breaking or violating the Constitution. So these two men agree that slavery is wrong, but they disagree on what they should do about it. The um, Boy, that raises a, a, a host of issues. Um, let me throw one out. Is there a, a sort of presentist assumption there when, when you say most Americans assumed or believed in some way slavery was wrong? Uh, certainly, you're, you're limiting that to most uh, Americans in the northern part of the country. Uh, I mean, it, it, one of the challenges I find teaching students today is, is to create a level of understanding of the pro-slavery view without sympathizing with it, but making clear that there right. were many people who, who had what we would otherwise consider perfectly decent moral compasses, yet believe that slavery was acceptable. Well, you've studied this question, and so we might have slightly different views on this. But I think we could probably agree that in the late 18th century, when we're looking at people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, James Madison, Mm -hmm. they believed that slavery was a necessary evil. They believed it it wasn't a good thing, but nonetheless, they couldn't figure out how to run the southern economy without slaves. And they would liken it to, well, war. Almost nobody thinks that war is a good thing, but war is apparently sometimes necessary. Now, by the 1830s, with the egregious or the spectacular example of John C. Calhoun, there Mm -hmm. are some people uh, who become real apologists for slavery and who claim that slavery was a good thing, not simply for the white people, but for the slaves themselves. Now, as I say, you might have your opinion on this, but I have a sense that that was, well... It certainly was never a majority opinion in the United States, and I'm not sure it was a majority opinion among white Southerners. I think for many it was a rationalization, but you didn't have to be around slavery very long to realize that there are some serious problems with this. If you go to a slave auction and you know you ask the basic question, would I want this to happen to me? Now, I would say that most whites in the South still believe that slavery was necessary but I think there was some uneasiness there. But, but I mean, leaving well, that aside, certainly the slaves themselves didn't think that slavery was a good thing. Of course. And nearly all Northerners believe that there was something wrong with slavery. Now, how wrong? Wrong enough to do something about it? No, for most of them, no. It wasn't a big deal in their lives. And then go to the extreme well, of the abolitionists and people like John Brown thinks it's so evil it must be ended right now. L- l- let me... We're going to take a short break. This is really interesting, um, but we need to take a short break. So let's do that now. Come back and talk more about uh, the underlying topic of slavery, but especially about how it's covered in the book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom by H.W. Brands, who is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. (music) 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com have we got a high energy all access sports show for you it's outside the huddle starring Lemond Williams each week join Lemond as he takes callers discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business outside the huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern 7 Central and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with H.W. Brands, author of The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. We're discussing in the first half about the the central question of the book, what do you do uh, if you're a good person in a society where evil is being committed? Uh, in this case, in a slave society in the 19th century, and, and Bill, you present John Brown and Abraham Lincoln as taking different approaches to this. Um, I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'm fully persuaded that people in the South had perhaps as much discomfort, uh, or the people in the North were, were in a as much agreement, I, I would argue that slavery was more uh, normalized then than we can grasp now. The, the, the analogy I would put out there is one day our grandchildren will be telling their grandchildren, now, I remember when dogs couldn't vote, back before they invented the chip that goes in the dog's head and we can hear their thoughts and it turns out they're smarter than we are uh, and we elect them to run our, our country. Uh, but we'll look back. Remember, in the 21st century, they put dogs in cages, uh, and they'll they'll think we were absurd. But we don't see it that way. We put dogs in cages all the time. Uh, well, I use a different analogy, and so okay. I'll tell you the one that I use. So yeah. I have a hunch that chemists and biologists are going to figure out how to manufacture meat in a test tube. Yes, and so 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandchildren will be able to slice into a juicy steak and know that no animals were killed in the production of this dinner. And then they will be told that, wait a minute, you mean in the past animals yes. had to be killed? 
Now, the reason I say this is that most people, and I'm a meat eater, mm-hmm. I don't voluntarily go to a slaughterhouse. I don't really want to know the details of how that hamburger got on my plate. But we don't mind taking advantage of it, do we? Well, exactly, exactly. So one would say that eating meat is something that we sort of consider necessary. Humans evolved with this, so Mm -hmm. we don't think anything about it, but we, we could certainly imagine a better way of doing it. And, of course, there are people who are vegetarians for moral reasons. Anyway, right. anyway, um, I, I, it, I just want to say I've, I've used I, I, that analogy in a, in uh, my book on uh, did Lincoln own slaves? I use exactly that analogy, exactly as you describe it, because I agree with you 100. percent I think it's a really good way of uh, of comparing how something that is normal to one generation becomes abhorrent subsequently. Uh, right. But let's get and back I to Brown and Lincoln. Go you. ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I will agree with you that more most Northerners didn't give slavery a thought from one day to the right. next. Because, especially in those days, Northerners didn't go to the South much. So mm-hmm. there is a striking moment when gold is discovered in California. And people mm-hmm. go from the northern part of the East. Of course, they come from the Southeast as well. But they go from the northern part of the East. And to make the trek across America, they basically have to go through Missouri. And for many of them, it's their first exposure to a slave state. And they see slave auctions, and you can read in their diaries how they're horrified. Wait, is this the way it's really done? And I think there's a carryover of this effect. I have this theory that the civil rights revolution did not really catch on as a national affair until the age of television. And television brought the reality of the Jim Crow system into northern living rooms. I think you're right. Northerners... They really didn't want to think about slavery or, for that matter, the mm-hmm. Jim Crow system until they had to. Well, you make the point that Lincoln himself argues against slavery frequently before the Civil War in terms of the, its negative effect on white Northerners, not on black Southerners, because he knows that's how he's right. going to appeal to his audience. Exactly. And he makes a point of arguing against not slavery per se, at least not in terms of policy now, but the expansion Mm -hmm. of slavery. And he can make that case in an appealing way for Northerners because the test then is, it's a sectional thing. So is the South going to be able to dominate national politics? Well, if slavery breaks out of the Missouri Compromise and into the entire West, then maybe so. And of course, this is one of the reasons that plenty of the Whigs opposed the annexation of Texas, which mm-hmm. in those days looked like it, would break, it might break up into as many as five states with 10 southern senators. And so he could make his case there because the number of abolitionists, real abolitionists in the North, was almost minuscule. Right. I think there was – and Lincoln certainly didn't consider himself an abolitionist. Now, mm-hmm. most Republicans – were anti-slavery. It was one of the basic planks of the party. But they were very careful to say what they meant. And Lincoln really pushed the envelope in his House Divided speech, where he says that this nation is going to become all slave or all free. And he, he never quite repeated that image again. He said it once, and then he started to walk it back. But he was very careful to say the Republican Party is about opposing the expansion of slavery. And as I suggested earlier, 
basically, if the southern states want to keep slavery forever under the Constitution, they can do it. But they cannot, if, if it continues to expand, then the next Dred Scott decision will say Congress can't ban, or states can't ban slavery in the North, and, and there you go. Yes. L- now, l- that's let me a ask, really scary thing. Go ahead. I, I want to ask about really the, the, the region. <laughs> it, it was indeed, and, and, uh, and plausible. Um, I want to ask about the research behind this book, because, and, and the audience that you're reaching, I mean, as I was reading it, I was, it felt very familiar. I mean, it's a story I've, I've studied. It reminded me of work I had done at the Lincoln Museum, uh, no longer existing now, but in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We tried to create an 8,000-square-foot exhibit that would tell much of the story that you tell without as much emphasis on John Brown, uh, more on Lincoln, uh, to an audience that doesn't know any more than there's an Emancipation Proclamation. And we used a lot of quotations. And as I was reading your book, I kept turning a page and going, oh, we use that one. Uh, we use that one. And, yeah. and all these familiar, and, and they weren't just like the most obvious ones necessarily, but it struck me you were trying to reach, oh, tell me if I'm right, you were trying to reach the same kind of audience as the museum-going family that wants something to do on a Saturday afternoon and goes into this history museum, and they're not history buffs. They're not even Lincoln. They, they, they don't. They're just there. Um, right. They've read your other yeah, books on it, other topics. So you've got to really pull this audience along. Right. And um, another way I think of my audience is my students at the University of Texas. I make a point of teaching an introductory course in American history to non-history majors. These are students who mm-hmm. have to take the course. They have to take two yes. courses in American history. And so these are chemists and engineers and various other people. And they're smart, and they've been good students. You have to be a pretty good student to get into UT these days. But they mm-hmm. don't have a particular interest in history. But the thing that I try to do is persuade them that history has some really interesting and important, but I focus on the interesting first, stories mm-hmm. to tell. And I imagine that these are my students. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that, no, most of my readers are not 19 years old. Most of my readers mm-hmm. are closer to 65 or 70. That's just the, the, the market. That's the demographic. General right. interest history, precisely. Mm-hmm. But, but they are people who kind of want to know how we got to where we are, and they can be drawn in by a good story. And this is one of the reasons that I emphasize the personal element in this story. So I try to get my readers invested in John Brown, invested in Abraham Lincoln, to the point where they want to know how this turns out. Now, this also, you asked the question, sort of the research here. When I'm, mm-hmm. I've been teaching, and you, know, you teach history, and so you know that when, when I decided to write about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, I already knew 80% of the story that I was going to tell because I've been teaching right. this story for 35 years. The question is, so what particular angle was I going to take? And the first angle was to pair these two up because rarely have they been paired up. In fact, I can't think of another instance where they were paired up in a book. And this particular question was posed. Mm-hmm. But then what I try to do is 
I try to find their voices. Now, the voice of Abraham Lincoln is very familiar, as you suggested, because we've read the letters and the, the few important speeches that he gave. And so his voice is familiar. John Brown's voice is less familiar, uh, but there are a lot of surviving letters from John Brown. And these are typically letters to his wife, sometimes letters to his son, uh, occasionally letters to people that he's hoping to hit up for donations to his cause. But finding the voice of John Brown is really important because to the extent that I can, I try to let my protagonists tell their story. And one of the things that I make a point of not doing is stepping in and standing in judgment on them. And this was tough in this book because there's a moment in John Brown's career as a militant abolitionist where he's responsible for the violent and brutal murder of five men in Kansas Territory. And their only sin was that they were in favor of slavery. They had come to Kansas to basically colonize Kansas for the pro-slavery side. And you know, I, I don't you know, wave my finger tut-tut at John Brown. I don't try to excuse it. I just, this is one where there were investigations into the murders. And so here I let the wives in a couple of cases of the victims tell the story. This is what happened. And I leave the reader to deal with, so what do you make of this? Here's a guy who believes he's acting in a just cause, and most of us would agree that the cause of opposing slavery was a righteous one. But these particular means, you know, so, and I do kind of trace the effects of this among the people who were supporting John Brown and how they took care not ever to ask John Brown point blank, did you do that? They suspected that he did. They knew that he was wanted for murder in Kansas, but they didn't ask him directly, and he didn't say yes or no, whether he'd done it or not. The the use of the words of the characters involved, the, the individuals of Brown himself and then the, the relatives of the victims at Pottawatomie Creek and so on, I, I was trying to put my finger on it. It, it reminds me of one of these... Uh, here the whole thing up when I use the word dreadful uh, the dreadful collections of primary sources that students get and they have to read uh, a page or two of some document without much context so they they just can't relate to it or understand right. it right. you put the words in the character's mouth so it's almost like a, a novel when you get to the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates for example there are you know, there's page after page of what Lincoln says and what Douglas says, but it's presented in such a way, there's no footnotes on the page. The sources are referenced in the back. You can see them, but they're not there. Yeah. So it, I found, I'm looking at that and going, oh, I know this stuff. I've read these, these guys before. Uh, but if I had never read this, I'd be reading it through going, okay, here's what Lincoln's saying. Here's what Douglas saying. They're arguing. It's not in the, one of those fine print collections of primary sources that cause the eyes to glaze over for so many students. Right. It's a very interesting technique. Well, thank you. And I have to tell you that that was the hardest part of the book to write, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, for uh -huh. precisely the reason that the debates, I, 
I devote, I think, I don't know, two and a half short chapters to it or something. But mm-hmm. the debates, as you know, went on and on and on and on. And I had to figure out how to frame the story of the debates, let my readers know what's at stake here. What are they arguing about? I wanted readers to get a sense of what I consider to be the high intellectual level of political discourse then. Because, I mean, one only has to compare those debates to what passed for presidential debates these days. And, you know, there's not been anybody in the last 30 years who could come close to carrying the handbag of either Stephen Douglas or Abraham Lincoln. And, mm-hmm. and the fact that, and so I, I set the scene, and there are thousands of people who watch these debates as they go up and down the state of Illinois, and they listen, and they pay attention, and they seem to form opinions based on what they hear. So I try to capture enough of the time and of the event to transport my readers back there, but I realize that readers today don't have the patience to read through, or for that matter, if they were in person, to sit through two and a half hours of debate and then do it six more times. So, uh, and then, of course, one of the things that happens in the course of debates is that since they're debating before different audiences, they tend to repeat themselves. And so I have right. to, you know, okay, go through that. Um, so it was, and I, I will confess, that the first draft had a lot more of the, the speechifying than the final draft. But I would go through two or three times. Each time, okay, do I really need that? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Will my reader's eyes glaze over, as you suggest, when they're going through this? That thing got to get rid of it. So I hope the readers don't. But I, just I mean, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, but this was the golden age of American political rhetoric. And... Mm-hmm. These people could talk. Now, a previous book that I'd written was about Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and John Calhoun. And now those guys could really talk. But I had to be very careful. I wanted to give my readers a sense of what it was like to listen to Henry Clay or Daniel Webster giving a speech. But understanding that folks' attention span for this kind of thing today is much shorter than it was back then. Just to carry on the metaphors we were discussing earlier, five generations from now when uh, they watch uh, electronic football or baseball games that last 10 minutes, they'll say, two and a half, three (laughs) hours? You sat there for three hours watching a sport? They won't believe it. Uh, We're going to take another short break. We're going to come back in just a moment, talk more with our guest today, H.W. Brands, author of The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with H.W. Brands, author of The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. Uh, Bill, I want to ask a, a question about uh, a meta question about writing writing in multiple eras is a common thing for popular historians to do but it's unusual in the academy if, if a new historian is just starting out she writes her dissertation she's expected to turn that into a book and the next book is to follow a recognizable research arc uh, the, the research agenda that will follow up on the first topic uh, to write about 19th century, then 18th century, then 20th century, that's just not done uh, in, in – how does – you're very successful at it. How does that work for you? Well, one of the first things that I tell graduate students or prospective graduate students who will say that I read your book on Andrew Jackson or I read your book on Franklin Roosevelt and, boy, that's the kind of thing I'd like to write. And that's why I want to go to graduate school. And I say, well, that's fine, but you're not going to be able to write that until you've written three or four books before that. Because right. if you're going to go into the academy, you have to understand what the needs and expectations of the academy are. And the first thing you have to do is to establish your reputation as someone who can do original research and can produce a work, typically a book, first a dissertation, then a book, that says something important and new to specialists in the field. And that's going to be a very different thing than writing, let's say, my book about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. Because as you rightly indicate, I'm not telling you, who've studied this, this field for a long time, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I might juxtapose things a little bit differently than you had before. But in terms of the basic information, when you said that you recognize a lot of what Lincoln was saying, of course, I expect mm-hmm. that. But then I, and as you realize, um, you're not my primary audience for this book, but I do tell my graduate students as apprentice historians, your primary audience, your first primary audience has to be specialists in the field. You have to demonstrate that you've got the research chops to do work that adds to the accumulation of knowledge that specialists build on that to then either themselves or other people to write books for general audiences. So I tell them, you know, I had been in the business for a long time. And crucially, 
I had tenure before I started broadening out in this way. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm happy with the way it's turned out, um, if only because I think that I would have gotten tired uh, if I had stuck in a particular area. But mm-hmm. it is with trepidation that I to enter these new fields because I know there are people like yourself who have spent a whole lot more time on these particular fields than I have. And I you know, hope I don't put my foot in my mouth too often. Um, but you know, my thinking is, well, frankly, at this point in my career, I can <laughs> write what I want to write. And if people want to read it, that's great. Um, if they don't, okay, they don't have to read it. Well, I think you you are successful here. I mean, as I was reading this, I I was thinking, really, anyone, if you've read uh, Stephen Oates' biography of John Brown and David Donald's biography of Lincoln and a few other books, then as you're reading this book, you will be entertained and see things juxtaposed differently, but you won't learn a whole lot of new stuff. But again, that's not, again, the primary audience. Um, But what I did find was there's a respect in the writing for the sources and for telling the story in the way you do uh, so that it's not something where the the professional historian looks at it and goes, oh, here's some guy just trespassing in someone else's territory to make a buck. Uh, I interviewed someone a few months ago, listeners will remember, who wrote a popular history on a a Civil War topic, I won't name it, who had done a year's worth of research and was, was, was an amateur historian, did a year's worth of research, he was a journalist, and believed he had contributed something new to the field, and it was, frankly, irritating. Uh, yeah. This, on the other hand, is, is you, you know exactly who your audience is and what you're doing, and you tell a really interesting story. And one of the things that I hope, anyway, and sometimes I think, I can bring to a story like this is precisely the perspective that comes from having written on other eras and other Mm -hmm. topics. And, you know, when you focus on a particular area, you can go very deep and you can get a specialized knowledge, but sometimes you, you miss out on some of the comparative work that you can get if you look at an earlier time or a later time or something like that. So I hope that that's a comparative advantage that I bring to this. And then there's something else, and I'm going to just confess to you that it's a certain immodesty, but every author has to be immodest to sit down and write this book and think that anybody mm-hmm. else is going to be interested in this. And I li- I, I'm of the belief that... If it's a good story you're writing about and you can do it justice, you will find an audience. You know, it's in some ways, well, in fact, the literature on Abraham Lincoln demonstrates that there is in, I'm going to say all of us, but people who are drawn to history, the same kind of approach that you see in, sometimes, in children when they want to be told that bedtime story in the same way you told it before. <laughs> You know, we, it's a really good story. And, you know, anybody who, anybody who really likes Abraham Lincoln, to take an, ex, an outstanding example, and who reads new biographies of Abraham Lincoln, does it not really because they're looking for new information? Because you're not going to find, I mean, you'll find a little bit. And, of course, on the dust jacket, it will say, 
use these new sources, but you know, you and I know the field well enough to know, okay, those new sources might have given you six new footnotes or something like that. But it's, right. it's a great story. Lincoln is a big story. It's a powerful story. And we like to be told that story again. So my thinking is, if it's an important story, and I would say there's no more important story in American history than how did this nation wrestle with slavery and how did it get out from under slavery? Who was involved? How did it happen? What are the legacies of slavery? And so if it's an important story and you've got what I think are arresting characters, and John Brown is really arresting, Abraham Lincoln takes a little more time to grow on you, but he certainly grows into his position is what makes him the greatest of all presidents. If you've got that material and you do it justice, then it's worth retelling the story. Let me get back to your central question, and it shows up. Your title is the Zealot and the Emancipator. Uh, Brown, you characterize by his beliefs, uh, zealotry. Lincoln, by his results, he emancipates. If it were called the Raider and the Moderate, it would be the other way around. What Brown did compared to what Lincoln thought. It's you pose the question, and at the beginning of the interview, you posed this. Uh, how does one respond in the situation they were in with zealotry, even to the point of violence, or with moderation, uh, as Lincoln did? He, he, it, how do you come down? Uh, I mean, you, you address it at the end, you say more or less directly. Uh, it seems to me your your vision of Brown is not unsympathetic. He is not crazy in this book, that's for sure. No, no. I think Brown was anything but crazy. He was committed. He was committed to his vision of how one should approach this evil of slavery. He did believe that he knew God's will on the subject, and God willed for slavery to come to an end through the efforts of people like himself. He was temperamentally not a pragmatist. He was an idealist. And so he was willing to strike right to the heart of the issue. But how do I deal with this? So I mentioned earlier that I, I make a point of not standing in judgment on my characters. Mm-hmm. But in this case, uh, and, and some of it is, some of it is, uh, a reaction to what I sometimes think of as a tendency toward every generation, toward a certain kind of moral narcissism. Every generation thinks that we finally got it right. And all those people who did it differently in the past, they were wrong. And and how could they be so blind in all of this? Well, as you suggest with your you know, analogy, my analogy of people giving up meat. Um, right. This is going to change. So we are, we have not reached the acme of moral perfection. So, so I, I am reluctant to make that kind of judgment call. However, if there is a character in, in the history who weighs in, then I'll give that person a voice. And in this case, my untitled third major character in the book is Frederick Douglass. Yes. And Frederick Douglass, in some ways, is the linchpin of my story. Because John Brown and Abraham Lincoln never met. But Frederick Douglass knew both of them. And Frederick Douglass sympathized with John Brown, but not to the point of joining him 
on the raid at Harper's Ferry. John Brown pleaded with Frederick Douglass to come along because Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave, one of the outstanding abolitionists, one of the most recognizable abolitionists, if he came along and basically gave it his seal of approval, then it would enormously increase the chances of success. But Frederick Douglass recognized that this raid was suicidal, that John Brown and everybody else was going to wind up dead. And furthermore, that no slave in his right mind would rally to John Brown's banner because the slaves would recognize that this isn't going to work and we're going to wind up dead. But nonetheless, Frederick Douglass was tempted because John Brown was this magnetic figure. And this is, this is one of the things I had to try to figure out. What exactly was the source of his magnetism? When he was captured and tried after the raid at Harper's Ferry, he, he won the sympathies of his captors, including the governor of Virginia. Now, they didn't agree with him, but they came to respect, even admire, his sincerity, the firmness of his belief in the cause that he thought was right. And, of course, this is what resonated with people in the North, like Henry Thoreau and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, people like this, who you know, they basically canonized John Brown when he was executed. But, but Frederick Douglass, although he sympathized with John Brown, he realized that John Brown didn't have the right path to ending slavery. He understood that Abraham Lincoln did. Now, Douglass was often impatient with Lincoln for being too slow, but I end the story with Frederick Douglass giving a speech in which he links John Brown and Abraham Lincoln and basically makes the case that John Brown was almost the John the Baptist, the one who has to come first so that Abraham Lincoln, and he's a Christ-like figure being martyred at the point of victory, can come through and deliver salvation. So Frederick Douglass is the one who says basically they were both right and they were both necessary and they both contributed to emancipation. Well, that the role that Douglas plays in the book is, as, as you say, it's absolutely central. He does overlap the two of them chronologically, and he knows both of them and speaks eloquently about both of them and really does help the reader see them uh, through the eyes of a committed uh, African-American abolitionist. We have less than a minute to go. 30-second question, uh, are you working on something else? I am, and this sort of gets back to what you're saying if I wander around in American history. So I'm writing a book that I'm calling America's First Civil War, and it's about the American Revolution, but it looks at it from the perspective of patriots against loyalists. And the point that I make is, well, so the question that I pose is, what compels a person to take up arms against his country, to forsake his country and take up arms against it? Interesting. And so I look at well, that, uh, several that... patriots and several loyalists. Well, that, that will be something we will all have to look forward to reading, uh, whether it's in the Civil War field or not. Uh, the guarantee is it will be entertainingly written, uh, just as this book is. It's called The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. The author is our guest tonight, H.W. Brands. Bill, it's been a pleasure talking about this book with you. Thanks for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. I enjoyed it very much, Jerry. Thank you. And listeners, as always, 
Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.